So I'm here on the outskirts of Paris, standing in a garden. But it's not just any old garden. This garden is beautiful. This garden has plant life from all over the world, right here in Paris. And it's the story of how this diverse plant life got here that's a little complicated, and it reveals a very dark secret. I decided while I was here in Paris, I might as well visit this garden and see its secrets for myself. My name is Baudelaire, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, I'm at Le Jardin d'Agronomie Tropicale, the garden of tropical agronomy. I'm going to take a walk through the garden itself and a walk through the complicated history. More after this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. And this place is beautiful when you walk into it because you just hear birds chirping and, and beautiful trees. And there's people here, like a, like a handful of people, you know, kind of just walking around. And I wonder how many of these people know about the history of this place. So the garden exists within a larger park called the Bois de Vincennes. The park is right next to the Chateau de Vincennes, which was home to Napoleon III and some of the kings of France. In the late 1890s, the College of Agronomy was granted this little corner of the park. The plan was to bring in cash crops from all across the French Empire to study and figure out how to grow them at scale and turn more profit. And so from the start in 1899, it was meant to train colonial civil servants. That's Dr. Megan Tinsley, a presidential fellow at the University of Manchester in England. She published an academic article about the garden in 2019. And so in the first few years of its existence, gardens were planted, greenhouses were constructed, and plants were imported from throughout the empire. The idea was that these colonial civil servants would figure out how to grow these crops at scale and would then travel to the French colonies and teach the people there what they'd learned. Basically, if France's colonial subjects could more efficiently grow profitable crops, this of course would benefit the French government. But 
1907, they decided to import more than just plants from across the empire. So this must be the Tunisian pavilion. This is where they had people from Tunisia working and giving French visitors a Tunisian experience. They were probably living somewhere over there. The Tunisian pavilion is a fairly unassuming building up a dirt path, but it has an eerie past. In 1907, this building was a part of something the French called the Colonial Exhibition. A more accurate description would be a human zoo, because the Tunisian people who lived around this building were literally on display for visitors. And the Tunisian people weren't the only ones subjected to this. The French Empire at the time included places like what are now Congo, Morocco, Madagascar, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. People from each of these places were brought in as part of the colonial exhibition. They lived in huts around the pavilions while also working in the pavilions. So inside the pavilion, there were artisanal collections. Um, so there were uh, artisan crafts, uh, local foods, all reflecting the French imagination rather than any sort of reality. Um, but uh, the people who lived and worked there would be selling the food, would be giving French visitors the experience of being in, in a marketplace as they imagined it, um, and in interacting with them, um, interacting with them, um, but in a very hierarchical way. All this was meant to give French people a sense of what life was supposedly like in these various French colonies. For example, the Tunisian pavilion was meant to evoke Tunisia, but it didn't even really do that. This is not necessarily conventional Tunisian architecture, but it did represent what the French public thought that Tunisian architecture looked like. Uh, and that was the case for basically all of the pavilions. They were a reflection of the French imagination of the empire rather than a reflection of reality itself. When I visited the garden, I saw a plastic signage that explained this was the Tunisian pavilion during the colonial exhibition. But I found no explanation of what exactly the colonial exhibition was or what actually went down here. Today, this building has been repurposed into a pretty nice restaurant. On the other end of the spectrum is the Moroccan pavilion, which I noticed was pretty run down. You can see this graffiti inside. It's kind of um, roped off, so I can't, I can't get inside it. The roof is pretty much completely gone at this point, and it's just completely covered in vines. Um, the glasses of the windows are broken. And I could see inside, and it's just... But this is a building that's just completely withering away. It's just kind of breaking. When I visited, neither the Tunisian pavilion or the Moroccan pavilion acknowledged that colonial subjects had been on display there. And by the way, colonial exhibitions, or human zoos, weren't just a French thing. This kind of display happened all over Europe. But France's colonial exhibition in 1907 had a very specific goal. It was to teach the French public uh, about the French Empire, but it was very much framed as this is your empire, your history. Uh, it belongs to you, so you have the right to know about it. Um, there was a sense of ownership over the empire uh, that very much informed the exhibition. So as the visitors to the garden sampled food or looked at the indigenous art and architecture, there was a sense of ownership. This all belonged to France, including people on display. 
This involved wearing what were stereotypical representations of their national costumes. So, for example, women were, were made to be topless, everyone wore grass skirts. And this is, I mean, this is Parisian weather, so it was May to October. So it was it was cold, it was unpleasant. It was not a, a reality that, that they would have chosen or that would have been familiar to them. Before talking with Megan, I assumed that the people on display had been kidnapped and forced to be here. And Megan said that though that was true in some cases, for the most part, they were just lied to. A lot of people who ended up in human zoos were enticed by the promise of being able to travel around Europe, um, uh, of being able to work for, um, for a high salary. Um, and what happened instead was that they were displayed, um, sometimes in literal cages, sometimes in enclosures, and sometimes maybe not in enclosures, but they were very much viewed and scrutinized by the white European public. This colonial exhibition was so successful that the organizers planned to keep doing them every few years or so. But that plan got put on hold when France and the other colonial powers were pulled into what the French called La Grande Guerre, World War I. During World War I, French soldiers weren't the only ones fighting on behalf of France. Men from French colonies were conscripted too. France sent soldiers from Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, Indochina, all over the empire to the front lines of the war. And when these colonial soldiers were injured, they were brought to Paris. But the French forces didn't want those foreigners in their hospitals, or even living amongst their people. So a field hospital was set up right there in the garden. And so housing them in the colonial garden was seen as an effective way of isolating them and also controlling their experience um, so that they could continue to be surveyed. And actually, the the architecture was also seen as an advantage. Um, It was thought that the colonial soldiers would feel more at home there. More at home, even though this wasn't based off reality. Not at all. (laughs) Not at all. And the soldiers in the garden were also photographed constantly for postcards that were sent across the colonies to show that fighting for France was the honorable thing to do. There are also lots of pictures of um, French officials pinning medals on soldiers, visiting them, shaking hands, showing that they appreciated um, their uh, their work. Um, and those were very carefully disseminated, too. Um, all of this was meant to be seen. All of it was meant to be displayed. Um, none of it happened in isolation, despite the isolation of the garden. During this time, the French built a mosque in the garden. It was actually one of the first mosques in France. But it wasn't exactly built out of the kindness of their hearts. Instead, the mosque was meant to combat German propaganda during the war that said the Allied forces were mistreating Muslim soldiers. This was dangerous for the French because 60% of their colonial soldiers were Muslim. Only a few years after the war's end, the mosque collapsed. Some people believe it was demolished, while some believe it just caved in on itself. All that stands now is a plaque where the mosque once stood. It just goes to show that it wasn't it wasn't really meant to be um, a permanent structure. It wasn't really meant to be useful um, for Parisian Muslims. So it too was about display, um, not about actually being functional. And also after the war ended, a monument was erected to pay tribute to the soldiers from the colonies who died in La Grande Guerre. On it is listed the multiple colonial possessions of France that uh, sent soldiers in the war. On, on one side, it says, Au soldat colonial de la Grande Guerre, 
colonial soldiers of the Great War, 1914 to 1918. Then on another side, it says uh, France d'Afrique, French Africa, of course. Uh, And then just lists the places that soldiers came from, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, Mauritania, Senegal, Niger, Guinea, Côte d'Ivoire, Dahomey. It was erected in 1920. And then rather than listing their names, importantly, as you would expect in a town center anywhere else in France, you have the names of all of the, the people from that commune who died in the war. Instead of that, it lists the colonies. So the lives of the people who died in the war are abstracted um, as, as colonies. Um, and the purpose of that is to show the strength of France at large because of its empire. It looks pretty beat up. Um honestly just over time there's a lot of uh bird poop over it um it's kind of moss growing on the side of of one of the sides and then kind of just like grass growing around its its base with cracks a little over a decade after the end of world war 1 the colonial exhibition came back to the garden this one was similar to the first one except it was bigger It was a lot bigger. Um, all told, about 8 million people visited, um, and single visits, there were around 33 million. So a lot of people were repeat visitors to that exhibition. What was new at this second colonial exhibition? Well, France had gained a new territory, what is now Cameroon from Germany in the Treaty of Versailles, and a new pavilion was made to showcase this new addition to the French portfolio. And this second colonial exhibition is sort of the end of the garden's use. Soon after, France's attention would be focused on German militarization and then World War II. But soon after World War II's end, most of France's colonies became independent countries or were occupied by other powers. And without a French empire to show off, the colonial exhibitions in the garden soon became irrelevant. The centrality of the empire to the idea of what it meant to be French declined quickly and in fact the memory of what the empire had been became difficult became taboo and that's how we end up where we are today to date only two pavilions have been restored the indo-chinese pavilion which now serves as an event space open to the public most often there are art shows there and the tunisian pavilion which like i said before is now a restaurant When I visited, it felt clear to me that there isn't much being done to acknowledge the garden's colonial history besides a bit of plastic signage. Other than that, there were just a lot of dilapidated buildings and monuments that haven't been maintained. Why do you think it's important to know the history of the garden? I'm thinking of how best to word it because it's an important question. So the past creates the present and the present creates the past. I'll start by saying that um we can't really understand contemporary France without grappling with its history and that includes its imperial history. The garden is so multifaceted and it's so layered and that's true of history at large. So when we when we visit a museum for example, often we're 
reading the text, we're looking at a display, and we're just passively absor absorbing what we're presented with. You can't do that in the garden. Um, th there's no one single story that can be told about it. Um, and when you look at the ruins of a pavilion, you're seeing the, the human zoo uh, that was there a century ago, and you're also seeing its gradual forgetting and erasure. All of that is part of history. Um, so I think we, we oversimplify it if we imagine that history is one grand narrative. Um, it's, it's many, many narratives, and it's also processes of remembering and forgetting. Um, and in the garden, you see all of that playing out within a single site. If you want to visit the Garden of Tropical Agronomy, it's on the eastern edge of Paris within the Bois de Vincennes Park. Its gates are open to visitors from 9.30 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. every day. It's a decent-sized park, so I'd set aside a little over an hour to see the whole thing. This podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. Our production team includes Amanda McGowan, Johanna Mayer, Dylan Thuris, Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Willis Ryder Arnold, Sarah Wyman, Manolo Morales, Gianna Palmer, Tracy Samuelson, John Delore, Peter Clowney. Our technical director is Casey Holford. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tindall. This episode was sound designed and mixed by Luce Fleming. If you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com. There's a link in our episode description. My name is Baudelaire. Witness Docs from Stitcher. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure they are always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.